0: Hello, my name is Samuel Cox and welcome back to another episode of the AALP podcast, the official podcast of the Cal. This is part two of a two-part series with Lieutenant Colonel Claire O'Neill, CSC. In part one, Claire took us through the logic of the Chief of Army's family of documents in order to discuss teaming and leadership, including the changing nature of teams in an environment of accelerated warfare. And she challenged my assertion that we're a peacetime army, when junior leaders should instead always be preparing for that moment where we get tapped on the shoulder to step up. In this episode, we resume the conversation and cover her Afghanistan deployments before women were allowed into combat, Grounded Curiosity, Army's first online PME site which she founded, and her upcoming role as CO, 51 Far North Queensland. So in part one, you gave us some insight into your command roles, and we'll speak about this again in part two, but you've also had non-command roles which I'd like to discuss. You've been aide de to the Governor-General, as you mentioned in Part 1, you were military assistant to the Deputy Chief of Army, and you were a key supporting player in the Chief of Army's office. What does leadership look like in those roles? How did you develop as a leader without any subordinates? And what did you learn about followership, which is a key part of the good soldiering document? These experiences look wildly different to being a platoon commander, where I am now, but if I want to progress in my career, becoming a staff officer is inevitable. Even for those who aren't officers, there are senior NCO and junior NCO positions which support senior leaders and share the same challenges. For example, the sergeant who is the assistant to the RSM of the Army.
1: So I think the important thing to remember is you're always a leader, even if you're not in command. Um, And that's why we have the mantra that everybody's a leader in the Australian Army and So even though you don't have that authority of command, you do have responsibilities as a leader and you are accountable for your actions. You're not just a cog in the wheel, which sometimes you can get into the mentality of as a staff officer. The best advice was given to me from the Chief of Army, and again, I've seen him say this publicly, and he uses the example of when you're in a brigade, it's very common to complain about Canberra, it's very common to complain about staff officers, and to complain about red tape. And so when you're in Canberra and one of those staff officers um, the holder of the red tape, you want to remember the brigades. You want to remember what that feels like and you want to be the best staff officer for those people at the pointy end. Um, you want to be the staff officer in the system that people almost don't know exists um, because you have made people's life easy um, and they don't know good thing that has come their way the uniforms just show up the new vehicles work now life isn't that easy but to be a good staff officer you need to understand where you're contributing to and don't forget that you're not contributing to Canberra you're contributing to the version of you who used to be in that brigade and so that's a really giving back your time as a staff officer giving back to the brigades giving back to who you you were in previous posting cycles I think is a really important framework to have. You also need to, in staff roles, set your own mental framework. Too many people describe being a staff officer as a career stepping stone, something you have to do. Um, Rather than it being a job that you could may actually enjoy, that you can learn from, and God an important forbid. God forbid, and an important part of contributing to the nation, so you, you need to again, it's about setting a positive framework, and you need to consciously set that mental framework instead of turning up on day one and having your peers set a mental framework for you. Um, I have on the desk in front of me, actually, the book Legacy by James Kerr. It is an excellent book if you haven't read it. It's the leadership book that I recommend to people. Um, It has 15 leadership lessons in the back of it. You can just read those if you're not much of a reader. You can read the audible version, which is only about five hours. So that's only a few runs for you to listen to it. It is quite an accessible book. Sometimes leadership books are a little too academic for my liking, This one, I think, at all levels in Army, you will be able to um, get something from. But it's been interesting rereading Legacy and understanding the importance of mantras. Now, I grew up in Three Brigade as part of a junior leader, and to this day, I have the One Brigade um, mantras in the back of my mind, which was, if you've been at One Brigade, you'll know them. Be brilliant at the basics, work as a team, understand the bigger picture – And it's interesting because in most things that I do, those mantras are running in the back of my mind about when I'm making a decision or about to undertake a task. And now as a staff officer, it's interesting when I was in the joint operations room in Headquarters 1 Div, I had a boss who equally drove, drilled through um, mantras about being a staff officer and he had three of them. And again, I remembered them to my day and I find them quite useful as a staff officer. The first one, his first mentor was, you're not Postman Pat. Um, So that's a bit blunt, but essentially it means that you don't just receive information and then pass it on to the next person. You're not Postman Pat, that's what Pat does. What you need to do is value add to that. You need to analyse that information, You need to then look at who needs to know that information. You need to have an opinion of that information and be able to give a short synopsis of it, understand the risk of the task that you've been given in there. So don't be postman Pat is a really simple one to remember. It sounds a little bit strange, but it's a good one as a military officer to have. Um, Don't be postman Pat then plays into the second mantra that he taught me, which is who needs to know what, by when and what's the best method to communicate it. So as a staff officer, you could think that you just work for your boss, but again, this is a team of teams. You need to look at anything that you're doing and realise that you can fix problems before they exist. So who needs to know what, Why, when and what's the best method to communicate it means that you're looking at the team again on your left or right flank up or down the chain of command and know whether you need to send that in an email with an analysis because you're not postman Pat um, or whether you need to get out of the office and go knock on the door of a senior leader because they need to know that straight away with that short synopsis that you've already got in your head. Um, and as a staff officer with the trust to know that when you're turning up at a senior officer's door that they trust you, that it's important that they're going to hear you out on that. And importantly, of who needs to know what your peers who are in staff officer roles, often their life can be made easier through understanding information flows and you doing a job that's not specified um, at be- getting out of the office and letting people know. There's a discipline to that too. When you work particularly for senior leaders, you hear things that sometimes are quite sensitive in nature and so you need the discipline to know what information you're sharing and when. But who needs to know what, by when and the best method to communicate it is one of those mantras that I consciously and unconsciously go through all the time. The last mantra about being a staff officer was be like Nike or be like Nike, however you want to um, pronounce the sports brand, just do it. So staff officers are well known for complaining about photocopying and a bunch of other stuff but sometimes you just have to be like Nike. Just do it. Um, you'll find the task goes quicker um, and and the time that you spend complaining about that task, you could have just gotten it done. So we all have bosses. Everybody has a boss in this system. Even the Prime Minister has a boss called the Citizens of Australia. The CDF has a boss. The Chief of Army has a boss. We have a boss. We all sometimes, to make our boss's life easier, We just have to be like Nike. So it's interesting to reflect on mantras and leadership and staff officer positions because being a staff officer, I've certainly employed some of these mantras and you can have a bit of a chuckle about them, but they kind of stick in your brain. And years later, somebody who is no longer my leader is still effectively leading me through those mantras.
0: Thanks for the uh, recommendation of Legacy there, ma'am. What the uh, Cal's currently doing is putting together a reading list uh, on leadership, which we're looking to release later this year, so we might need to sneak a copy of Legacy on there as well. Uh, in that answer, you also talked about uh, remembering the brigades and time in the brigades, and uh, we'll transition now from talking about being a staff officer to uh, some of your deployment experience. So... You were deployed to Afghanistan in 2006 and 2008 in Reconstruction Task Force 1 and 4. You're in an engineer role leading reconstruction tasks in and around Tarenkaut. Uh And in 2004, you're on Operation Uber E. Janubi, which operated in a highly dangerous area and fought through a Taliban attack. Uh, at this time, women weren't actually allowed to serve in combat roles, but that was already happening. Can you tell us about being ahead of the curve and leading as a woman in combat? And beyond your gender, what did you learn about leadership from being at war? Uh, Junior leaders like myself simply haven't had that experience uh, because we're serving in a peacetime army. I'll I'll stick with that. Uh, uh, And leadership lessons from the battlefield is a theme which we have previously discussed on this podcast.
1: So to me the thing that makes you prepared for danger, which is inherent in combat, is to always be ready and I've discussed that. You don't get ready for war when you get on an OMD. Our job when we signed up to the Australian Army is to prepare for war and that should be our mindset daily. And so being ready for war physically, mentally, morally, and being organised for it is something that I think helps when it then happens. Because again, once you're on that OMD, the time that you spend is with your team. You start to prepare for it. So... Um, I did two deployments, I think you said 2004, I did a deployment in 2006, 2007 and then another one in 2008, I think must have still been a staff cadet almost in 2004, you probably shouldn't have trusted me to go anywhere at that point. Um, but I did two rotations and it's interesting because as an engineer you're often – the jack of all trades and master of nothing, but it means you're multi-skilled to go across different roles. And so I was in an engineer job, but very quickly found myself as a shooter, as a member of patrols, um, and on my second deployment as a battle captain in a combat team. And engineers like to break rules. I didn't actually really know that I wasn't allowed to do those things apart from when people came back and exchanged stories about what was happening in Iraq compared to what was happening in Afghanistan with women in some of these roles and being told that um, that what I was doing was was actually not allowed. I didn't really know that at the time because engineers had many women and I wasn't the only woman doing some of these roles. So it's, int- it's interesting when combat happened on these deployments, it was muscle memory for me and it's it's a bit strange but I can't really remember what I was doing in these moments of combat. People in the team have told me what I was doing as I have told them what they were doing um, because your muscle memory kicks in and that muscle memory was formed through lead up training, admittedly, um, and through being part of that team, we were a well-oiled machine by the time these violent actions were taken. And so fast forward a few years after being in Afghanistan and doing some of these roles, there was a national dialogue about women in combat and it was really fascinating to hear some of that because I had been in combat situations – Um, and then to have people debate all of these things that seemed ridiculous to me, like the men will drop their weapons in order to save the woman and I thought, well, I must not be much of a woman because nobody dropped anything to save me, which again was muscle memory. We trusted each other in that team. We all had jobs to do because we were taking minimum footprints um, out with us because IED risks meant that you didn't want to have more people than what was absolutely necessary in the vehicle. So everybody had a role to play um, and on patrols and the like. And so it was interesting to come back to this dialogue about women in combat. Um, it was interesting to come back to Australia and hear that the Taliban would pick off all of the women and make them targets. Uh, My interpreter used to joke um, to the local children, which when I got good at the language, I actually realised what he was doing of, can you pick the woman in the patrol? There's a security risk to what he was doing, which we had words about, Um, but they couldn't pick it. Now, again, that does nothing to your self-esteem when you realise that when you're in full combat gear, people can't tell who you are. You look the same. because of the amount of equip- equipment that you're carrying. So again, to come back to this dialogue about how women in combat would be picked off one by one when my experience was is that you couldn't actually tell that. And in fact, when on my second deployment, I knew enough of the language to have conversations with them, um, not through an interpreter and nice. people were often surprised when I opened my mouth because obviously you can tell that I'm a woman when I start to speak. It also wasn't expected to have women in those deployments, so it wasn't something people were expecting to see. So again, it all comes back to teaming really. We built trust in that team and if you are competent, it didn't matter what your gender was. Now, back in... 2006 and 2008 when I was doing these rotations it wasn't expected for women to be doing this role and I tried really hard to demonstrate competence. So for example in my second deployment into Afghanistan I knew the combat team trusted competent people but how do you actually demonstrate that when you're an attachment that word again Um, and so I used to get up at 4am in the morning and do more PT and extra pack marches, deliberately timed so that the combat team saw me coming through the gate. This is the lead-up training before we went into Afghanistan, um, on top of the PT that we would then start the morning with. That gets you a reputation, but it was a demonstration of goodwill from me that I was... Earning my place on that team. Now, I think women should naturally be trusted. Again, you start with trust, but I knew back then I had to build trust in that team um, through demonstrating competence in there. And so, by the time months later, where we are in combat actions, there wasn't a question about gender at that point in time because we were a, a well oiled, trusted machine. People knew what each other was doing to the point where it was muscle memory Um, and so yeah again to come back to Australia to have this uh, the Skype scandal kick off a national dialogue and have all sorts of weird and wonderful opinions about what women in combat would be was interesting when we and I wasn't the only one had already had women um, in combat roles and in combat action at that point in time.
0: So you and I also work together on an online PME platform, uh, Ground of Curiosity, where you're the founder and director, uh, and I'm the editor. And it's great to see a community of professionals engaging with PME through GC, the Cove, the Forge, the Arc. But that wasn't always the case. Uh, Army Senior Leadership has given us their trust to have a contest of ideas through writing, podcasts, seminars, and the like when you founded GC, it was ARMY's first foray into online PME and that trust wasn't as readily given as it is now. What sort of leader did ARMY need you to be in that instance in comparison to when you were in Afghanistan?
1: So leaders make a difference in people's lives it's selfless and a leader's legacy is the leaders that they in turn create leaders create leaders and this is no different to whether you're in Afghanistan or in barracks trying to solve a PME problem as the case may be and it was being an instructor at Duntroon as a captain that really highlighted this for me as a captain at Duntroon you're surrounded by peers and it's actually easy to fall into a team that puts everything as a complaint rather than as an opportunity and captains are quite well known for this maybe even lieutenants too and you when you find yourself part of a team like that you'll find that complaints breed complaints and this in turn leads to unhealthy negativity. And as I've spoken about before, you really want to keep your mind in this positive mindset because that is um, more healthy for everyone involved. And so I often heard, and I probably said it to captains saying, if only I was a major, I would have the power to change this. Well, after Duntroon, uh, the year after, I was a major. And so, um, and when you get promoted, you inherit a whole new set of problems that you could complain about and so it was at that point in time I just took some time to think about that and I went well what happens if I go back now that I think I've got the power as a major which you don't really because again just a new set of problems and fix all of those problems as a that I said I could fix if I was a major so look back rather than look at my current problems as a major and so that's what I really started to do with Grounded Curiosity. I knew I had a reputation at this stage of being a Fulbright Scholar. I knew that it was a professional thing to do and I knew as a Fulbright Scholar and now as a major I could ask the question of whether I could get this started and so I asked the question and was given high level permission to um, to run this trial of Grounded Curiosity. And by this stage, the content on Grounded Curiosity was was Lieutenant and Captain PME, so it wasn't valuing me as a major anymore. But the leadership lesson in that to me was, was as soon as you get that extra rank on your shoulders, whether it be being promoted to corporal or being promoted to major, just remember to look back at the complaints you used to make Remember the things that you used to say, if only I was this rank, I could fix it and go back and help fix it. Um, I I think that we do have a little bit of culture creeping into our system where if you ask a junior leader um, kind of what are the big issues, what are your problems, I will often hear particularly young lieutenants talk about their problems and I'm surprised when they don't talk about what their section commanders what the challenges their section commanders are facing and I think that that again is a framework that we need to start to think about. So I've tried to apply that at all levels um, in terms of what can I do to help the rank below me, Um, what power do I now have that I think can fix the problems that I used to have and that actually then in turn means that you're part of a system where leaders are creating leaders, that you're giving back. Um, It's selfless because it's no longer helping you as an individual. Um, But in terms of things like grounded curiosity, I know that that has – like I get back from that every day through conversations of talking to junior leaders. And so in thinking that I wouldn't get anything personally out of it, it's actually made me a better leader in the end too. Just another point about um, leadership in, say, the PME space is sometimes it's okay to change your network. Um, in the Australian Army, you're usually still friends with the people that you went through Duntroon with or Kapuka. And sometimes groups... Um, can take on different characteristics. And I was incredibly lucky that through the Fulbright Scholarship, I was able to develop an international network. And I really wanted to bring that international network and share it uh, with my peers back home and to be able to get the value from that network into different systems. But also what happened is I found a network outside of Army that made me a better version of myself. Um, It is very easy to have networks of people that you've always have had. So I'd just make another recommendation to junior leaders out there to always challenge your thinking by surrounding yourself with people who make you better. So if you are falling into one of those peer groups that you find is always complaining about something instead of seeing the opportunities, you need to think about that be a leader and extract yourself from it or lead the group out of of that framework of thinking.
0: So we've looked back at some of your uh, earlier and mid-career successes and leadership positions, but I'd like now to look forward to 51 Far North Queensland. Um, so very soon after graduating Duntroon, you took command of a platoon that was in WA for the Army Aboriginal Community Assistance Project and now you're about to become the CEO of 51 Far North Queensland. That unit has a very proud history of Indigenous men and women serving and of doing good work in rural and remote Indigenous communities while also protecting our Northern approaches. How do you intend to lead this unit in serving our First Nations people in Far North Queensland?
1: So I think you always remember your first Troop or platoon, your first section, Um, you always remember your first mission after graduating and mine was eight troop completing an ACAP in remote Western Australia at a place called Yakinara, which is south of Fitzroy Crossing and east of Broome for those who'd like to look at a map.
0: In God's country. In God's country,
1: no less, and um, and. You know, I have lessons for life from that team and that mission that, again, I carry forward today. Um, and the lesson that I really carry forward from being um, in a remote location with a team that was quite fractured when I'd arrived, that had some discipline issues and hence I was taking over that team early, was that it's always about people. People make teams work people are your priority, Um, people lead us to success and particularly when working in remote communities, again it's a team of teams, you could quite easily think that your team is just the Australian Army people up there but your people, your team of teams was to immerse yourself in that community, um, to have respect for language and culture And to share a funny story, I have at home this beautiful artwork from an elder called Dennis Laurel. He gave it to me as I was leaving Yakinara. And I think it's because fundamentally he felt sorry for me. We all have these moments where we don't quite know how we're going to lead through a problem or help people. And um, to share a story, one of my sappers had... Run over a cow. Now, that's a story in itself um, about how you run over a cow. The cow, unfortunately, was dead, and I had to go and explain to the elder that one of my sappers had killed his cow, and I could not speak his language. He could not speak my language. And so, through a bit of reenactment of interpretive dance, of big truck cow Um, I tried to explain to the elder that we had killed his cow and you know you remember these funny moments and the elder turned to me and just laughed and then invited me um, to feast that night on that cow so um, you know it's always about people and being able to laugh and share these moments even at when you're very nervous um, at these things to really remember. And so I take these lessons forward with me. Um, I'm incredibly lucky and absolutely honoured to be selected to command um, 51 Far North Queensland Regiment in 2021. I can't give you any great prophecy on what my leadership will be like up there. I'll let others judge that anyway. But I do have two leadership principles for whenever I start a new leadership role. The first is that in order to lead, you have to learn, and in order to learn, you have to listen. And so my start point at 51 is to listen. My second principle that I take up there is that the best leaders I've worked for have been leaders who have been who their team needs them to be. Instead of who they want to be, they've adapted their style, their leadership, their teaming approach for the team that they're leading rather than telling the team to adapt to them. So again, um, you can often fall into the trap because on on command courses, they'll tell you to write your command philosophy. That is a really good thing to do to understand your starting position. But I won't finalise that until I meet the team and I understand who they need me to be as a leader, who they are as leaders of individual teams. And again, the best bosses I've worked for have been leaders who've made the team, the individuals in that team, the best versions of themselves.
0: Man, thanks for joining us today. One of the key takeaways for me in part two was that the best bosses understand the importance of being the leader that their team needs them to be rather than trying to fit their team to their command philosophy. Another target I can aspire towards is setting the tone for my team by always being positive, even if you have to fake it sometimes, because that's contagious and is good for the leader to impact and influence their team. I also like the idea that you should prioritise spending the day with your people and save that paperwork for your own time after hours. As a part-time officer, Herney sees his soldiers three hours a week. I think it's good advice which can be tangibly applied by my NCOs and I. My homework now is to be better at taking on the problems of the rank below me so that my corporals feel empowered. Once again, thanks for your time. To our listeners, I look forward to you joining us for our next episode.